0: Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of north-central Florida and beyond. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm Jack Prater, your host for this week. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of the college and a discussion with people most familiar with these stories. Hurricane Ian made landfall earlier this week and is being credited by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as one of the most powerful storms ever to hit Florida. Its most devastating impacts were felt in southwest Florida, where storm surge leveled parts of barrier islands, including Cayacosta and Sanibel. The hurricane has left 2.6 million people without electricity, and Florida Power and Light expects the power grid to need massive structural repairs. The true loss of life is still being determined, but the death toll is expected to climb over the coming weeks. This week, WUFT reporters fanned out across north central Florida, bringing stories from coastal communities and rural areas.
1: I'm here in the Sunset Park neighborhood in Tampa where things are looking a lot different than they did last night. The sun is shining, the wind has finally died down a bit, yet businesses like this Circle K behind me are still closed to the public. As you can see, they're still boarded up for the storm and the pumps remain closed. I've been driving around Tampa Bay for most of the afternoon and most damage seems a lot more minimal than we originally expected here in the Bay Area. Lots of fallen palm trees, a few tipped trees and scattered branches are common. The evacuation order in Hillsboro has been lifted. However, authorities continue to urge those on the road to use caution. In Tampa, Amy Gallo, WUFT News. I'm Macy Goldfarb for WUFT News here in Brevard County. I'm just outside of Melbourne, less than half a mile from the east coast. You can probably tell winds are still persistent here, sitting at about 25 miles per hour. Residents in this area woke up to scattered palm fronds, debris, trash, fences. And we have a few inches of flooding in some roads, but nothing like our friends are seeing, of course, on the West Coast. Although some residents on the beach side here are without power, including myself, They're among some of the 2.5 million residents in Florida who've lost that power right now. Again, reporting from Brevard County, I'm Macy Goldfarb with WUFT News.
0: Ian left many affected areas with spotty cell reception. Family members in North Florida and across the state struggled and are still struggling to contact their loved ones. In the aftermath of the storm, I spoke with University of Florida students from Fort Myers Beach whose family homes were destroyed. Here are their voices.
2: I haven't heard from my uncle since last night. I'm, I'm nervous about you know having enough gas to get all the way down there and
3: and then highways and roads getting out because he basically lives he lives right off the beach uh right off the island so it's gonna be a lot of damage so i'm just hoping to have enough stuff
4: to be able to get there
1: this was like had all of our sentimental stuff that we possibly could have like my mom had Vintage furniture from her grandparents. We had all of my childhood, like memories that, like you keep at your parents' house, were there. It was basically my parents' dream home. They always wanted to live on the beach. Yeah, it's, it's crazy.
4: The water was up the
2: second story. Couldn't see the car. It was completely buried. So I know that the whole the whole house is gone. And the refrigerators and door front doors were floating around the parking lot. So. But no, that's that's all I know. It's the video he sent me. Can't get on the island, so I'm not gonna go back for a few days.
5: Well, good morning. I'm here, of course, with Kevin Guthrie, the Florida Division of Emergency Management Director, Jim Eifert, head of the Florida National Guard. Also pleased to be joined, uh, joining... Uh,
0: Governor DeSantis uh, held a press uh, conference Friday uh, morning creator, where he took stock uh, of the damages Chris done well, to the state and what resources
5: are available really to Floridians. Uh, ...fema's uh, responsiveness uh, to, to this uh, disaster, so thank you very much, and thank you for being here. Um, you had people immediately uh, descend onto the scene, particularly in southwest Florida. Uh, there's Uh, life rescue, making sure people are are okay, uh, following up on any type of of calls. um, And there's been really a Herculean effort. Uh, There's also the assessment, okay, of what's been damaged uh, that's going to impact the entire community. And, of course, the power uh, is a big issue. There are people that are working. I think Lee and Charlotte Mm -hmm. have about 15% restored. There's going to be able to be some more restored likely in the relatively near future there is going to be some that's going to require some rebuilds and so the utilities fp and ls down there was down there first thing Uh, they understand that uh, and they're prepared to do it the other issue with lee county that uh, they've asked support from is they had a water main break for their county water utility Uh, that means that the county uh, does not have water at this point, And you need that to be able to function in society. Uh, they've requested support uh, from FEMA. Uh, and then we FEMA was able to provide the Army Corps of engineers and they were on the ground after Kevin called them. I think at like three in the morning yesterday, they were on the ground from Jacksonville all the way down to Southwest Florida in the afternoon. Uh, they've been working to assessing uh, that situation. We also have Florida national guard personnel, uh, standing by to help the Army Corps if they need it, uh, but at the end of the day you know that is something that will be very, very critical to be able to, to get that back and, and it may require more of a rebuild, maybe it will require uh, some some more short term remediation. They're going through that, uh, but that's clearly a top priority and um, we're, we're thankful that, that FEMA and the Army Corps are there helping out.
0: This week, the Rewind team reached out to emergency operations managers in rural areas and local industry spokespeople to ask what their biggest concerns were ahead of the storm and what is being done afterwards to help affected communities. When powerful tropical storms and hurricanes affect Florida, community resilience and disaster response can vary across the state. The Extension Disaster Education Network, or EDEN for short, is an organization of researchers at land-grant universities that work to connect vulnerable communities with research-based disaster resources. Producer Julia Cooper spoke with EDEN Point of Contact for the University of Florida, Angie Lindsay, about how rural areas across Florida are uniquely impacted by powerful storms like Hurricane Ian just days before its impact.
1: From your knowledge, what is typically the experience of more rural parts of Florida during these kinds of powerful storms?
6: Well, the the minute you say that to me, I automatically think of Hurricane Michael, because uh, that obviously impacted several different uh rural counties and I I was in the in the position that I am now during that particular hurricane and I was actually deployed with the uh with the state, with the Florida Department of Agriculture uh, to work in the incident command post afterwards. Uh, so I was there right after the storm and it was tough. And I think one of the reasons that it was really, really tough is because a lot of these rural counties uh, depend on some of the urban centers that are in that area. And a lot of times those urban centers were hit badly as well. So therefore some of the resources that the rural counties rely upon uh, are also an, in dire need of help also. so. Uh, It takes longer to get to some of the rural counties. Um, They don't have some of the resources that they need to. And so in a case like Michael, where Panama City was so heavily impacted, that was probably one of the locations that a lot of these rural communities relied upon for different types of resources. And, And so therefore, trying to get help to Panama City, but also to the rural counties that were surrounding is going to take longer and it's going to take a little bit more coordination as well. Uh, so it, it is, it, it's tough to see some of these communities that maybe don't have some of the resources that some of the urban ones uh, try to work to recover from disasters such as this.
1: That being said, what kind of resources are available to
6: them currently? Sure, absolutely. I think um, as as a state, as as the Florida Department of Emergency Management does an excellent job of really working uh, to get those resources to those areas as quickly as they as they can. Um, and I think working closely with their, their county emergency management and the state emergency management and preparation for uh, storms is, is really helpful. And I think we do a good job as a state overall of trying to make sure that the, that those those areas have the resources that they need. Um, you know, looking at it from a research standpoint and a social capital standpoint, you know, uh, thinking about bonds and the bonds are the the very close knit ties that people have within communities. And obviously, a lot of rural counties are very bonded. And so, when you look at it from a research standpoint, they're all very close knit. And then you have the bridges, and those are the bridges that are outside of the county uh, with surrounding counties or surrounding county or surrounding urban areas. And then you have the linkages, and that's with the linkages that are with possibly the county government or the state government, the higher level kind of regulatory agencies. So, I think it's important for Uh, these communities to really work at building some of those bridges and those linkages uh, during blue skies in order to make sure they have the resources available for when uh, we do have storms and disasters.
1: What have you seen change in the time that you have been in this position in terms of infrastructure and resources when it comes to hurricane preparedness? Are we better off than we were, you know, a few years ago or a few storms ago? I Think so.
6: I I um I do. I think that that Hurricane Irma uh, impacting so much of the state that it did, and then a year later having such a a, a horrible storm as uh, Hurricane Michael, um, and that we weren't necessarily prepared for something that big. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing kind of the same scenario today. Unfortunately, that the storm just intensified so quickly. Um, I think I think for for one thing, I think with with citizens, I think it definitely made us pay attention a little bit more of, oh gosh, this is happening. Um, and I think that, again, I think our state emergency management and our county emergency management at different levels does a good job of really working to uh, make sure that they keep our counties informed as well as uh, as prepared as much as possible. Um, but I, unfortunately, you know, experience can be our best teacher sometimes. So I think going through those made both major hurricanes in 2017 and 2018 has definitely kind of increased uh, awareness um, and maybe encourage folks to take this a little bit more, more serious than um, in the past.
1: How can people best utilize the resources that are currently available to them right now? It's
6: always, you know, we're, we're Floridians so we're like, oh, you know, we don't, we don't need to plan. I know what I'm going to do, basically. But, you know, a lot of times when we're in the throes of of this you know the anxiety a little bit kicks in so taking that time to during blue skies or when we've had a couple of days to prepare to really make sure that you maybe even take an index card and jot down a few things of if i need to evacuate where am i going to go um am i going to go to a shelter and what do i need for that just thinking through some of those things before we're in a situation where uh, we have to move quickly I think is is really beneficial and just trying to think about i mean obviously we think about these things during hurricane season as Floridians, but trying to think about these things uh, when it's not hurricane season you know maybe uh making sure that your hurricane supply uh, package is is ready to go in March and, or April a little bit before hurricane season and I think it's just important to kind of keep that uh Maybe not in the top of our mind all the time, but then always, always be thinking about, okay, what's my plan and what do I need to make sure that I have? And there's some great resources out there, uh, and I encourage folks to look at templates for plans, and it doesn't have to be a beautiful plan. Again, it can be something you can jot down on an index card that you make sure you've discussed with your family. It's just having that discussion when you're not in a stressful situation, I think, can be really beneficial
1: there anything that we haven't gone over that you think is important to know for people preparing for the storm, what they should do during the storm, and then how they should deal with the situation post-hurricane?
6: Sure. So I, I think it's important that, again, we listen to our county uh, managers, our county officials, as well as our state officials as well. I think it's very important to listen to them. They're the experts and and they're there to help as much as possible. But I think as we're Thinking about preparedness and thinking about how best we're going to prepare to get through um, a storm, it's also important to think about recovery as well. What are the things that we may need may need into, into recovery that we could possibly do now? And I mean, it can be something as simple as we know we're probably going to have a lot of yard trash, uh, some sticks and leaves and things like that. Do I have a rake and enough uh a lawn and lawn and leaf backs to so that I can be able to start on this on Saturday or whenever it's kind of clear for us to go back outside. So not only thinking about preparedness and mitigating through the storm, losing electricity, and making sure you have batteries and things like, like that, but also thinking when I'm trying to get back to normal, what are the things I'm going to need as well?
0: That was producer Julia Cooper speaking with Eden Point of Contact for the University of Florida, Angie Lindsey, about the unique impact of hurricanes on rural areas across Florida. Already in a crisis state in Florida, the insurance market has reached a tipping point. Insurance carrier Citizens Property Insurance Company covers over a million policyholders in Florida. With only $13 billion in reserves for claims, some are unsure if that will cover the damage suffered after Hurricane Ian. To put things into perspective, Hurricane Andrew caused an estimated $26 billion in damage, according to NOAA. Today, that would be almost $55 billion. Producer Matthew Bell spoke with Essential Energy and Environment news reporter Thomas Frank, who covers the insurance market in Florida. Frank covers climate impact for the organization. Here's Frank. So Citizens is what you call the insurer of last resort. It is
7: backed by the state of Florida, and it is a insurance program that gives coverage to homeowners who can't get coverage in the marketplace. So if your policy gets canceled, if your insurer goes out of business, you go to Citizens and they will give you coverage.
2: Due to the turbulence in the Florida insurance market over the past few years, how do you think private insurers are going to stay solvent while paying out claims for Hurricane Ian?
7: Not all of them are. I I think that some of the less financially stable insurers are gonna go insolvent. I think the other ones, they're going to hopefully have enough reinsurance, which is basically insurance that insurers buy to pay catastrophic claims then, and that will be how they pay these claims. I think another thing you're gonna see happening all over Florida is disputes about whether damage from Ian was caused by wind or water. And the significance of that is that if damage is caused by wind, the property insurer will cover it. But if it's caused by flooding, they won't cover it because most property insurance, most homeowner policies exclude flood damage, which is why you need to have a separate flood insurance policy that covers flood damage only.
2: And correct me if I'm wrong, but most flood insurance is covered through FEMA. Is that correct? That is correct. You mentioned in an article you recently wrote, the number of people with citizens has policyholders with citizens have reached over a million. Um, How do you expect citizens to respond to this influx of claims? So citizens has a couple options. One,
7: it's got reserves. It's got about $13 billion in reserves for precisely these kinds of storms, these catastrophic storms. So it will pay out through that. And then the option B, is if it runs out of reserves, it can charge a special assessment on first on its own policyholders and then on any insurance policyholder in the states. So your auto insurance, your uh, homeowners insurance sold not through Citizens, all can be hit with a special assessment that you could pay for potentially years, and that is exactly what happened in florida after hurricane andrew
2: and i'm not sure if you know but just today in florida the, a recent a bill was passed uh that forbade insurance companies from canceling uh policies for the next two months do you think that will also have an effect on citizens
7: i don't know i'm not familiar with that bill i mean two months is not a long time so i'm not sure how much of a difference that's going to make you know you're talking long term here with citizens. Citizens have been around since two thousand two. So if they get a two month reprieve, I don't I don't think that's gonna help. I think you know it will give some property owners some security in the short term, but it it's not going to stabilize the insurance market in Florida. That's that it doesn't address the underlying problems in Florida.
2: And what are the chances of citizen policyholders receiving assessments from citizens to increase their reserves?
7: I think they're not bad. You know, it, it a lot is going to depend on the claims that come in from Ian. Nobody knows how many claims they're going to be. Nobody knows what the value or the cost of the claims are. So I think that a lot of people are going to be watching that very closely. You know, the governor and the CEO of Citizens have said frequently, you know, in the last day and also in the last months, that Citizens is on solid financial footing. So... We'll see, and we also don't know, it's still hurricane season. There's another month of hurricane season. And it's not clear, actually another two months of hurricane season. And you know, one of the worst hurricanes in Florida history, Hurricane Michael happened in mid-October. So there, there's a lot of time left for a lot of damage to still occur.
2: And can we expect policyholders that are insured with private regional carriers to receive assessments from citizens to increase their reserves?
7: Quite possibly, so citizens has that authority. Citizens has the authority to uh, put a special assessment on its own policyholders and, as I said, on any policyholder, not just property insurance, but also automobile insurance, umbrella liability coverage, everything except for medical and malpractice.
0: That was producer Matthew Bell speaking with Essential Energy and Environment News reporter Thomas Frank about what powerful storms like Hurricane Ian mean for Florida's already unstable property insurance market. Many of Florida's industries get impacted significantly after a storm. Some, like forestry, can take years to recover. Alan Shelby is the Executive Vice President of the Florida Forestry Association. He spoke with producer Ezra Sheffield about how large storms like Hurricane Ian impact Florida's forests, and how the destruction impacts
3: lumber and milling industries. To start, tell me about how Florida's forests are impacted by large storms and hurricanes.
4: Well, uh, unfortunately, we've had quite a bit of uh, uh, experience with with storms uh, in the recent past. You know, the impacts to the forest industry, widespread flooding uh, where we can't get uh, into the woods after the storm, uh, obviously timber damage, uh, blowdown of trees. That's the, uh, I guess, the worst impact. And once that happens the clock starts ticking on salvage efforts, trying to get those, uh, get those trees up and processed. Oftentimes we uh, uh, we're unable to, uh, to salvage greater than 30 to to 50% of the down timber. So can you kind
3: of run me through what the process is after the storm has passed and you're trying to get in there to start those salvage efforts? What, what does that look like?
4: Well, it, it it all uh, certainly depends on the storm and the severity uh, of the storm and the amount of flooding. Um, what we found oftentimes is immediately following a storm, uh, the ground is so wet, there's so much flooding, we can't get in to evaluate uh, how much timber damage we have, uh, how much down timber in, in certain areas. We would rely heavily on the Florida Forest Service to conduct damage estimates Oftentimes that's done uh, via airplane, uh, aerially. They can fly over an area and, and determine, you know, the extent of, of timber damage in, uh, in vast areas. But really we, uh, you know, it's just a matter of time and days for our folks, as well as the forest service, uh, to get in to access these areas and do a visual inspection. What designates timber that is salvageable versus unsalvageable? Well, during, uh, you know, typical wind events, hurricanes, you know, it, it oftentimes snaps the trees. Uh, if, if the winds are great enough, it will snap the tree somewhere close to the bottom. It's usually not right at the bottom or it uproots the tree. Uh, in either instance, uh, that tree, depending on the age of that tree, uh, is still still marketable to some degree. So either a, a blowdown, either a snap tree or an uprooted stump, is still is still a salvageable product uh, if we can get in get into the area, and and if we can do it within a certain time frame. And a tree that's blown over in that instance typically will uh, has a lifespan of about six months.
3: So how are the lumber and milling industries impacted when a large storm comes through and causes damage and destruction?
4: Well, I mean, when when you're dealing with with a large scale destruction, like again, going back to Hurricane Michael, you know, what we see, um, you've got massive amounts of of timber on the ground. The consuming mills, the sawmills, the pulp mills, pellet mills, they can only they can only take so much. And they're usually already running at full capacity so you've got such a glut of of timber on the ground or on the market so to speak if you're salvaging it it tends to impact well it impacts pricing uh, simply on a supply and demand curve you know there's there's just a limit to what you can uh, salvage and and consume based on the consuming mills in that area that glut of of wood on the market you know it, it tends to to, again, drive prices down both from the consuming mill side as well as the housing market side.
3: Interesting. So when a storm like this comes through, there's almost more wood to be
4: used rather than it's slowing down production. That, that's exactly right. Um, there's, a, there's a glut of wood in a specific area or region of the state where typically that would be more balanced, uh, a more balanced harvest. And it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't all need to be harvested within a six month period. It would be more evenly spread out, you know, throughout the year or years as timber is typically a, you know, an 18 to a 30 to 35 year crop. So whenever you are working on
3: getting this salvageable wood, out to the mills. Do you send it out of state if the ones in state are at full capacity to try to save it?
4: The typical wood basket, as we call it, typical distance to haul timber is usually around 80 miles. Uh, so that's your that's your wood basket that uh, that we try to stay within. You get outside of that, and the uh, the economics uh, no longer makes sense. So if there are mills outside of the state, for instance, in the Panhandle area, you know we we can travel out of state in Alabama or Georgia uh, to consuming mills in those in those regions. But you know, typically we we try to stay within that eighty mile radius of where the damage is.
3: And then for the wood that isn't salvageable, how how is that disposed of?
4: Well, the wood that uh is unable to be salvaged, which there was a great deal in uh in that panhandle area from Hurricane Michael, it you know, there's there's not a whole lot you can do with it. You can you can push it up into big piles and burn it. You can push it up into windrows, they call it, uh, and just let it rot over time. Uh, and that's a time consuming process. That's a 10 to maybe 15 year process for it to rot down. But that's really the only, you know, the only options we have at that, at that point. Just let Mother Nature take its course. That was producer Ezra Sheffield speaking
0: with Executive Vice President of the Florida Forestry Association, Alan Shelby, about how the wake of large storms like Hurricane Ian impacts Florida's forests. The American Red Cross is accepting donations to help Hurricane Ian victims. The national organization is providing supplies, shelter, and other relief. FarmShare, a Florida nonprofit that sources leftover fruits and vegetables from farms, is also accepting donations. The organization plans to send truckloads of food and supplies to Floridians. Feeding Florida is a network of the national food bank nonprofit Feeding America. The organization is working with food banks across the state to provide food to hurricane victims and are also accepting donations. To help the University of Florida community, including students, staff, and faculty affected by the storm, you can donate to Aid a Gator. Thank you to the Innovation News Center team for your around-the-clock coverage this week, and thank you to the additional WUFT reporters for their help. WUFT will be continuing coverage from Gainesville, Fort Myers, and around the state as Florida recovers from this storm. Stay safe, everyone. Stay up to date on the aftermath of the storm at WUFT.org. That's all for this episode. For more on each story, make sure to check out WUFT.org. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Julia Cooper, Ezra Sheffield, Matthew Bell, Nathaniel Wilson, and Jack Prater. Our executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news and information. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Prater. See you next week.